So um, really intrigued, intrigued by this, by this um, growing awareness. And, um, and uh, I think it's, um, it's an important thing to make just part of our process. There have been periods where food has not been readily available. We're forced, you know, just by nature, not so much in our current society, but in human history um, to abstain from food. And we've, we're able to adapt to it. And there's one other point, and that is when you fast, whether it's short-term or long-term, your body begins a process of starting to break down old senescent cells and tissues and begins the process of being able to regenerate them. This occurs in the bone marrow and it can occur in cells throughout the body. So I think it's an important aspect of uh, promoting uh, longevity and youthfulness. Thank you. I think there's been a lot of studies in the past about um, longevity studies that have shown that restriction in calories has helped promote life and longevity. And the, the issue with fasting is that it's not, you know, there's a balance between starvation and fasting, but we have, I think, as a culture, eat way too many calories in way too long of a window in a period of a day. So it is very inflammatory the way our eating patterns are right now. And I think the concept of you know, limiting the window and helping our insulin levels come down because you get a lot of insulin protection when we fast in a smaller eating window or eat within a smaller window, whether it's six hours or eight hours or 12 hours, it's, um, and insulin resistance is becoming one of the biggest problems that's contributing to many, many metabolic issues, PCOS, metabolic syndrome, in uh, dementia, increased risk for cancer. So when we are trying to control our insulin, we can do that very nicely by controlling the window of time that we're eating and maybe going hours and maybe for a few, maybe whatever pattern of fasting you wanna do, you're helping your insulin, you're creating resilience in your genes, you're burning fat, you're starting to um, you know, change your gut microbiome for the better. So there's so many benefits and I think it's part of everyone's toolkit to use fasting as a way to help their health and age better. Is there a difference if we fast, let's assume we say we're going to only eat between 11 a.m. and be done by 7 p.m. And that's our, what the time of the restricted intermittent fasting that we do. Does it also help to not eat between lunch and dinner? Does it matter if I snack on fruits and vegetables all throughout the day, or is it better to eat as much or eat what I need to at 11 and then wait till dinner and eat again? Is that better than snacking throughout the day? I, I think, think it's fine. Yeah, I think I think some of the, some of that answer is personalized. If people have things like bacterial dysbiosis and bacterial overgrowth and gut microbiome disturbances, having longer periods of uh, fasting between meals, four to five hours between meals, is actually very beneficial. Um, but typically, what I ask people to start trying to do is to control their window of feeding into a smaller window. Whether they're doing three meals or five meals in that small window, I think you know, you have to start somewhere. And I think it's okay to do that. I always like to get data. So for me, also, individually speaking, I think we all respond differently, whether it's our hormones or our markers of inflammation. And so you can start a pattern, and you can test, you can test your insulin, you can test your sugar control, you can test your lipids on different patterns that you're employing. You'll one, maybe feel different when you eat different. I know if I ate four times or five times in a day, I would be very groggy, even if it was in a six hour window versus eating two or three meals. So personally, for me, it's different than someone else, but you can also monitor individual data and see those points on, on everyone if they wanted to try it. So a couple, couple points, just echoing um, 
what what you've said, Dr. Rao. And uh, first is that um, uh, the research, as I understand it, shows benefit of um, when we're talking about time-restricted eating of having at least 12, if not more hours of no feeding and the food is condensed into a shorter period. But whether fasting between meals is beneficial, I don't know that there's a literature anywhere near as strong as the one about the time-restricted eating that I've described uh, with 12 or more hours of no eating. The second thing is that I also totally agree that it's, it needs to be individualized. There are some people because of their own unique uh, medical situation need to have multiple small meals and small amounts throughout the feeding period and others who will do better with more discrete, you know, fewer feeding, peer, fewer feedings and, and more discrete meals with, with no food between them. And I think that needs to be, that really needs to be individualized that part. Thank you. Um, how do you stop inflammation? What is the, the, the bullet points of the key things we could do to eliminate inflammation? What's the most important things that we could do? It's so hard. So, okay. I would say you have to get rid of the junk. I always say you can't, you have to get rid of saturated fats, salts, excessive salt, sugars, uh, processed foods. And uh, before you add in, I mean, you can add it in, but it's not going to be the same impact if you're eating lots of plants, but you're still eating lots of saturated fats, processed foods, preservatives. Um, and that is in dairy. You just have to get rid of all that because that is very inflammatory. I think secondly, there's, it's a four prong approach. It's, it's not just what you're eating, what you're not eating. It's also how you're sleeping, um, how you're moving and what you're thinking so that there's the stress response, everything that affects the immune system basically is really, really important. So it's um, not in isolation of each other. Our bodies are wonderfully adaptable. And so all our inputs matter. But if you could start with, I guess the overarching thing would be your diet. And then, but also remember sleep promotion and stress reduction and movement are very, very, very important as well. So just kind of think of it as a package deal. Um, sadly, it's not just, it's not going to come in one pill box or one intervention. It's kind of a whole lifestyle look at your, at your overall well-being. Thank you. So, um, just keeping my focus, I, I agree with the, the non-dietary parts of that and how important they are just keeping the focus for a moment only on the dietary. I think there are like maybe a few different things that we could focus on. One is the importance of building a healthy gut microbiome. And mostly that's a function of eating prebiotic rich foods, fibrous plant foods, which nourish healthy gut microbes and promote the production of short chain fatty acids, which are inherently internally anti-inflammatory in the gut and will help to preserve a healthy lining of the gut and reduce the propensity of leaky gut. So I think that's, that's a really important component and having probiotic rich foods to inoculate the gut and ensure the diversity of, of the different species in the gut microbiome. So building a healthy gut microbiome is a real important factor. The second is ensuring that your diet has an optimized ratio of essential fats within it. And that means a lower intake relatively of omega-6 fats and a higher of omega-3, which are more potently anti-inflammatory. And that can be achieved uh, with I mean, 
to begin with a whole food plant-based diet, but also awareness of the different foods within it. And um, I think there are different dietary patterns around the world that have better or worse um, uh, optimization of, of this. Uh, one that I'm a big fan of are traditional Japanese diets, where they're um, uh, very high in a food called, uh, that I think is a really important food, seaweed. Seaweed has long chain omega-3s. Most people think you have to eat uh, fish to get omega-3s, preformed omega-3s. Not so. You can get that from uh, from from seaweed and and uh, and plants from the ocean. Um, and then uh, so optimizing that ratio and av avoiding things that are very high in omega-6, like processed foods, helps that. Third thing avoiding uh, irritants or being aware of certain things or triggers for you. For some people, it might be gluten. For other people, it might be nightshade vegetables, the, like tomatoes and so forth, uh, where there's a sensitivity uh, to solanine that they contain that may trigger inflammation. And, uh, and incorporating anti-inflammatory foods, things like turmeric in your diet can also be helpful. Yeah. And I agree with the panel, but let me just put a plug in for uh, a supplement called fisetin. Uh, there's some evidence now that high dose fisetin can help remove or decrease the number of zombie cells, which are senescent cells that, are, that hang around and cause inflammation. But I'll also say that not all inflammation is bad. For example, if you've cut yourself, the, the part of the body that's going to heal your cut is the inflammatory system. So I tell people, my patients, et cetera, that, you know, don't take this high dose fisetin if you're trying to fight, you know, trying to heal a wound because you need, you need that inflammation. Yeah, that's a really critical point. And you're really alluding to acute inflammation in response to an infection or, or tissue damage where you need an inflammatory response to bring blood to an area with healing factors. That's that's important, and you don't want to get in the way of that process unless it's excessive. But that's very different from chronic inflammation, where things are triggered by imbalances, metabolic and biochemical imbalances within the body, and inflammation is just unbridled and it's ongoing, and it's doing damage to tissues rather than helping to repair them. Is inflammation a proven cause of disease, such as cancer and other diseases? Uh, well, I'll, I'll jump in here. It depends on how you define cause. As part of a multi-causal set of things, absolutely. Inflammation is a, a factor, a causal factor, but not the only cause. Other things need to be in place as well. But it's it's essentially uh, like gasoline on a spark. and 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 that spark could be something that you know, maybe you had mechanical trauma to your knees uh, years ago playing basketball as a kid, and now you're having things that are creating inflammation and worsening it and turning it into rip-roaring arthritis. Um, it could be that it's uh, that you had um, uh, some exposure to a chemical carcinogen, or you uh, have a genetically acquired propensity for a cancer, but then you're eating things that are inflammatory and are causing the excessive promotion of cells that bear a genetic predisposition and turn those things, cause them to multiply and, and grow out of control. So it really, um, it's, I'd, think, I'd say it's 
like stress, it's an accelerant of, of, of most things, of most chronic diseases, usually not the sole cause, but, but, but part of a multi-causal picture, absolutely. And I think the thing is we all get precancerous cells that hopefully our immune system fights and gets rid of. So the whole, the whole picture is you want a healthy immune system so that you don't, when, when you do develop these precancerous cells, that the body just gets rid of them before they, they cause problems. I think that there's four big categories. There's a normal immune system. There's different types of cells that work against say viruses and bacteria and cancers. There's an overactive immune system that is also inflammatory like allergies and eczema. And then there's the autoimmune component. So immune system is very complicated and to navigate all that is all some, some, some level of inflammation. So you can connect the dots and most medical illnesses has an inflammatory component to it. Everything, almost everything in our medical textbooks has an itis component to it, which is definitely linked back to some disarray or discontent with our immune system. So I do think inflammation can be directly correlated. If I do grounding where I walk every day on the dirt or the grass or the beach, if I do that for an hour, does that get rid of a lot of inflammation? Is that a worthwhile thing to devote time to, or is it mild, the impact? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in here that um, I don't know how well studied that's been overall, especially in regard to inflammation. But one thing I am familiar with is that an ancient Chinese practice of walking barefoot over stones, cobblestone walking has been shown to lower blood pressure and improve circulation. And to the extent that a healthy circulatory system has an anti-inflammatory effect in the body as a whole, which what I, I would strongly suspect it does, I'd say there's only benefit in that kind of a practice. Uh, just try and avoid the really sharp, tiny little stones. And what about salt? I mean, I kind of feel like I hear you when you talk about animal products and we talk about sugar, but I feel like I ignore salt. Like I don't add it to anything, but it's always in the guacamole. It's in flax crackers. It's in olives. And somehow my brain compartmentalizes salt is not as serious as the others. Um, how should, what is your thoughts on how I should think about salt? I, I agree with you that salt isn't as bad as oil is from the studies. It's half as bad in terms of causing uh, destruction of the endothelial cells, uh, the lining of your blood vessels and causing the problem. So, so definitely I would look, if you're looking to promote your health, I would look at cutting out added salt and as you mentioned, a lot of the processed foods, crackers, etc., they will add lots of salt or sodium. And, and, a, and a quick and easy way you could do is when you look at the nutrition facts on whatever food it is you're eating, if it's not a whole food, you look at the nutrition facts, if the sodium number is more than the number of calories, you don't want to put that food in your body. I think in general, you want to try to avoid cooking with salt, maybe just to add it at the end. The, the American Heart Association says, you know, something like 2,300 milligrams a day, which I think is still too much. That's about a teaspoon of salt per day for per person, probably limited to more between 500 milligrams and 1,500 milligrams, which is half a teaspoon or less for people. But that's not, that's can be acquired by, you know, not eating processed foods, not eating foods with 
you know, that are in cans or boxes, but also not cooking with it. So you just add it for taste afterwards. I think that's a really important point about uh, avoiding processed foods. And I think if we're talking about a whole food and a whole food plant-based diet, if you don't add salt to it, the amount of sodium in that is incredibly low. It's so low that you can afford to add a little bit of salt as a palatability factor to that. I think it's important to keep in mind the idea, the concept of having a balance of tastes, something promoted in Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, and other traditional healing systems, where we want to have the bitter taste, the salty taste, the sour taste, uh, the sweet taste, and uh, what am I leaving out? And the pungent taste. Umami. And, and I was going to say in Japan, they add in a sixth taste, umami, a savory taste. Having a, a balance at a low level of these and as much as possible from the foods themselves without adding or accentuating is probably optimal. And if needed, small amounts to help to add to that balance or to help foster that balance. Mm -hmm.